Thanks, David, and thank you, Daniel, for all your work with the uh, youth kids. And this is a great time if you're looking for a fall ministry for your families. Uh, Tulsa Bible Church is family-oriented, and so we want to be involved in the discipleship of all of, um, all of the family, young, old, even down to the little babies in the nursery. So um, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes for the next several weeks, and so this is going to be just kind of what we do at Tulsa Bible Church. We'll, we'll talk through some passages, uh, we'll preach through, we'll talk about it a little bit, we'll go on to the next chapter and the next verse in Ecclesiastes, we'll talk about that a little bit, and this will be probably the most depressing fall of your life. Uh, Ecclesiastes is like, man, you just want to uh, come along to Solomon and, and sort of put your arm around him a little bit. Um, hey, ch- chip her up, old pal. It's, it's going to be okay. We'll get through this. Maybe a, a little of um, antidepressants will help a little bit, or so, if that's what you're into, you know? I mean, whatever it, whatever it takes, right? So, um, youth video really quick. Who's my guy that went up for the two-handed jam? There, I don't know if he's here, but I need you to work on your hops because that hoop was about probably five feet tall. And so just, just keep on, keep on working. Yeah, we saw it was a little bit low. Um, just want you to keep on working on that for me if you, if you don't mind. We had a lot of fun at our youth retreats. And uh, between the slow motion two-handed jam and Joe Shoup doing the Doc Holiday pistol turn, that was probably the best part. Where is Joe and Kelly? I, I think he's usually up in the balcony up there. That was pretty classic right there. Where's, where's Joe? Oh, yeah, that's right. He's with, uh, he's with Jonah. That's right. They did a little, little retreat this weekend. That's awesome. I want to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I want to start by giving you first, uh, Katie, first slide here if you don't mind, giving you a poem. This is from Stephen Crane. It's a popular poem. You probably heard it before. It really captures a lot of the sentiment of Ecclesiastes. I saw a young, man, a young man pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this, and I costed the man. It is futile, I said. You can never, you lie, he cried, and he ran on. Solomon would have said to this young man or these young people, All things are full of weariness. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. Uh, Stop spinning your wheels so much. And of course, Solomon is the perfect person to write the book of Ecclesiastes. In terms of wisdom, Solomon was the most wise man on on the face of the earth. He had more wisdom than any other human being had wisdom. In terms of wealth, so, you know, I get really excited when I put pansies in my garden out front in my yard. Solomon planted a forest, okay? Uh, this guy was extremely wealthy in terms of pleasure and desires. Nothing was held back from Solomon. And at the end of his life, he, he kind of looks back at that, and in the process of writing Ecclesiastes, he looks back and he says, you know what? That really wasn't all it was caught up to be or it was thought to be. There's an Old Testament scholar, Sandra Richter. Uh, Next slide, Katie. And I love what she says about Ecclesiastes. Says the author of the book of Ecclesiastes was a man who had it all, but discovered that having it all nearly destroyed him. And fortunately fortunately for us, when he climbs the ladder of ultimate success, success and looks over the brink, 
He actually has the wherewithal to step back from the edge, climb back down, and tell the rest of us that there's nothing up there. Even when we think we have found something new, we haven't really found something new. And in 1492, finish this line. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and I love Columbus because he gives me a day off of work every year, right? He's a great guy. But even Columbus was not the first one to discover America. New discovery? Not really. Basque fishermen already were crossing the Atlantic and found great fishing spots off the northeastern coast of North America. They didn't tell anybody about their great fishing spots because they were great fishermen, and you don't reveal your secret spots. The merchants of Bristol in England uh, weren't as kind. They regularly reminded Columbus that he was not the first to discover America, and, they, and he knew about it, never mind the likes of Leif Erikson and the Norse explorers, who probably beat Columbus by about 500 years, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about that too much. Ecclesiastes forces us to look at life from a different angle. Uh, next slide. I love this. Its purpose is to wound us from behind. Ecclesiastes, when you read it in its context, its purpose, often its purpose is to wound you from behind. Like a punch in the back, it makes painful points we didn't see coming and which leave us blinking in surprise. So this morning, what I want to do is, is start a brand new sermon series on Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes shows us that there's really nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun that hasn't already been pursued. There's nothing that we can do today that's going to cause us to uh, make an indelible impression on, that's going to always be remembered forever and ever in history. Actually, most things have already happened. This world is tends to be very cyclical in how those things happen. Ecclesiastes 1 through 11, uh, verse 1 through 11, we're going to read, it, it kind of just tells us that it's, it's same old, same old. Every single day, every generation, same old, same old. But before we get into Ecclesiastes, I want to talk just a little bit about wisdom literature in the Bible and how this genre is functioning. So, when you open up your Bibles and you, you find Ecclesiastes, you're right in the middle somewhere, and you're right in the gap of five books that we have given to us in Scripture that we consider wisdom books of the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then everybody's favorite, Song of Solomon, right? And Ecclesiastes is one of five wisdom books, and so it's important to understand how wisdom books are functioning in Scripture and what they're intended to do in our lives to draw us closer to Christ and closer to the truth of the gospel. Wisdom is certainly not less than being moral and good. As we pursue wisdom, we pursue it as nothing less than being a moral person and being a good person, but it's, more, it's much more than that. And the best way to understand how wisdom functions in Scripture is to start with the law, the moral law from God. Because the moral law will tell you very plainly how to live life with wisdom. This is what you do, and this is what you don't do. And the moral law is quite extensive. Right? You guys have probably heard the magic number of 614 laws that they have counted from 
from Genesis all the way through Malachi in the Old Testament. Yet, the vast majority of decisions that we make in life will not directly be because we read about it in the moral law and in the law of God. The moral law is not going to tell you how to pick your friends. And right now, for a high schooler who's starting their fall semester of college, there's probably nothing more important to them than picking their friends at school and at the universities where they're at. The moral law is not going to tell you if you should take this job versus that job. If, if one choice isn't directly a sinful choice, you'd, you need wisdom to make those decisions. A lot of times, Scripture won't even tell, as long as you're in the realm of a believer, won't even tell you whether you should marry this person or that person, to start dating here or not to date there, to go to that school or to go to this school. Maybe you want to pick up and move closer to your parents. The law is not going to tell you that you should do that or not do that. Those decisions in life call for wisdom, right? And so, next slide, Katie. The, here's a, a good definition of wisdom, and I think this is what the wisdom books of the Bible are given to us for. Wisdom is the ability to know the right thing to do in situations that the moral laws don't address. And there are a lot of situations like that. And I would say, perhaps, more than any other book that our culture needs right now, the wisdom books of the Bible are extremely important. Um, Because wisdom, just like a lot of other things in our culture and our society, are basically going to the wayside. Ecclesiastes is a book that is full of wisdom. However, Ecclesiastes doesn't read like the other wisdom books. It doesn't read like Proverbs. It doesn't read like Psalms. If you read Ecclesiastes from chapter 1 to chapter 12, from front to back in one sitting, again, we kind of just, we want to tell Solomon, man, can I take you out for ice cream? Um, let's go have a cup of coffee. It's, it's going to be Okay right? You, you read Solomon, it's like, man, he's, he's this depressed guy. He seems to contradict himself. Um, is he angry at somebody? Is he, like, mad at the world because of all these experiences that he's gone through and, and what he came and what he got from all of those, all of those things? Um, Ecclesiastes is almost like Solomon in midlife crisis, right? Yeah, go buy a fast car if that's what it takes to bring you out of your crisis, um, But man, what is going on with Solomon and and what is going on with this book of Ecclesiastes? It it presents a very somber view of life, a difficult view of life. The famous rabbi that once wrote, O Solomon, where is your wisdom? Not only do your words contradict your father, David, your words contradict themselves. So this this is going to be a really fruitful study for us to try to understand the wisdom of Solomon. And of course, to understand it through the avenue of of a Christ-centered reading of Scripture to the Gospel. Number one this morning, number one in your outline. Katie, next slide for me if you don't mind. Here today, gone tomorrow. Ecclesiastes chapter one. The first thing that we're going to read about in Ecclesiastes is that life is here today. It is gone tomorrow, and we need to embrace it. We need to embrace that. Look down at Ecclesiastes 1. Again, these uh, first two verses that David read this morning. The ESV says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. These verses uh, introduce us to our teacher right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. Just like the first day of class, a lot of you guys are going off to school introducing yourself to your classmates. Here, we get a teacher introduction. And at the end of the book, actually, it's, it's very important to distinguish in Ecclesiastes the difference between the teacher, Kohelet, and the author of the book, Solomon. So we're going to hear directly from the teacher, but the teacher is different than the author. And the reason I know that is because everything in Ecclesiastes builds up to chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. They're the last verses in the book. And that's where the teacher, we stop hearing from him, and the voice of the author comes in. And actually, we have a chance to evaluate the words of the teacher, just like you would do a a teacher evaluation at the end of the semester. The ESV calls this person the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, and And the classical, the traditional interpretation has been that Solomon himself was the person who penned Ecclesiastes. I think that's spot on. The New Living Translation, the New Living and the New um, International Version, the NIV, don't use the word preacher. They actually use the word teacher. And again, it's important to see a a distinction between those two things because how the book is put together. So we're going to see an introduction, a conclusion, to the preacher's word, and then the evaluation that comes at the end. The Hebrew word for teacher, just mentioned a second ago, is kohelet. And it's somewhat of a puzzling word. Kohelet is a a preposition, a nominal preposition in Hebrew. It comes from the word kahal in the Old Testament. Kahal means to the assembly. Literally, it's the assembly. Uh, The verb form is to assemble or to gather. So Ecclesiastes is our English word for that book, and that should sound very familiar if you guys are strong in your theology in the New Testament. Ecclesiology, that's the ecclesia of God. In the New Testament, the ecclesia of God is the church. In the Old Testament, the ecclesia, the community, the called out assembly is the kahal. Okay, so Ecclesiastes actually comes from that word Ecclesia, a lot of us, um, it's just, it's an interesting parallel to, to the church. So, ultimately, this is the teacher who assembles, the teacher who gathers people together. And twice in the book, Kohelet, as an official title, is used with the definite article, the teacher, the preacher, and that's given, that means it's a specific title referring even to a specific person. The greatest teacher, the greatest preacher, is going to give us lots of questions to ponder now as he enters into lecture after lecture on wisdom for Israel and, by implication, wisdom for us. The key word in verses 1 through 2 is the one that you saw repeated over and over again. Vanity of vanities. Vanity, vanity, vanity. You ever know that song, You're So Vain? Bet you think this song was about you. Um, meaningless is what you might have in your scripture. A lot of times, verse 2 won't use meaningless because you can't say meaninglessness of meaninglessness. It's, there's just way too many syllables in there. So we shorten it up to vanity. It's, it's a very key word, but it's a very complex term. 
And I want to stop and just, just talk about this word vanity. The Hebrew is hevel. Um, it's a H-E-B. It's, it's pronounced hevel when you say it in English. Meaninglessness is probably not the best translation of this word. Vanity itself is probably not the best translation either. What I want you to do is hold your place in chapter 1 and turn to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6. You can see another use of this term, hevel, in the Hebrew. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6 should say something like, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. That striving after the wind is meaningless or vanity. Um, typically, when we, you think of vanity, you would say that this is, vanity is something to be completely turned away from and do away with entirely. But here, chapter 4, verse 6 says, better is a handful of quietness. So a handful of quietness in Ecclesiastes 4 is not meaningless. That's not vanity. That's actually better. Okay, so when we talk about vanity, you can flip back to chapter 1. Again, we talk about this word hevel or, or meaninglessness. Um, it has to do with a vapor, breath, or smoke, perhaps. Um, the uh, Wachtendorfs, you guys are here. You guys just recently got back from the beach. Have any of you get, taken a trip with your family? You've gone to a beach, and almost every, every kid loves to do this. What do you do, what do you build when you're on a beach in the sand? You build a sandcastle, Right? And sandcastles are great because you can build quite extensive sandcastles, and you can be as detailed as you want to be when you see these things. One time we went on a vacation, and, and there was a, just this huge beach and, and great sand everywhere, and they had these professional sand-building guys out there, and they were making, like, animal figures out of sand and, like, carving just the details. You saw turtles and snakes and all kinds of stuff. It was, it was just amazing. But no matter what you did with, and no matter how great your sandcastle might be, eventually the tide's going to come in. Right? And even if the tide doesn't come in and reach that castle and sweep it back out into the sea, it's going to rain, and the wind is going to blow, and that castle is not going to stand forever. That's, that's what the idea of, of vanities has to do with here in Ecclesiastes. Again, this Hebrew word is, is uh, breath or breeze. Solomon is saying that everything in the world is like a breath or a vapor, perhaps. Life is often like a puff of smoke. It's about to go outside and do some grilling and see some smoke out there. Um, it's, a, it's like a morning mist that rises, and eventually it, the heat of the day comes in, and that mist, just as quickly as it came in, is as quickly as it's gone. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Life itself is here today and it's gone tomorrow. But it's a little bit deeper than that. Life is also very elusive. Life is enigmatic. It's mysterious. Every time we think we grasp something in life, every time we think we've got it figured out. Any of you raised kids before? I finally understand my, my kid, and then something happens, you're like, Whoa. what happened there? Life is it's, it's a mystery. It escapes us. And, and it doesn't seem to follow any particular pattern or any particular mold that we put into it. Listen to this, this next verse, uh, Katie, here. Psalm 144, verse 4. 
Man is like a breath, hevel. His days are like a passing shadow. In Proverbs 31, verse 30, one of the very last book, verses in the, in the book of Proverbs. Charm is deceitful and beauty is hevel. It is, it is here one second and it is gone the next, right? I love how David Gibson wrote a book on Ecclesiastes and next slide, Katie. Here's what he says. It's a really good quote. Wanted to share it with you. It says, One day you will be dead and gone and the world will go on, probably even without remembering you. A hundred years after your death, the chances are no one will even know that you lived. If this depresses you, David Gibson says, then keep reading. There's still a lot for you to learn. But if it cracks a wry smile on your face, you're halfway to happiness with God. Life is is here today and is gone tomorrow. And so, number one, we embrace that. We embrace that. Number two, life tends to be same old, same old. And so we remember that on a regular basis. Life tends to be same old, same old, and so we remember it. I want you to look at these illustrations that Solomon gives, starting in verse 3. Here's kind of a, a heading for this section. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And here's his first example, a generation. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Verse 5, the second illustration he gives is the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises over and over again. Of course, we know that the sun isn't rising and setting. It's actually the earth that is rotating, and it appears that the sun is, is rising and setting, but it just continues to happen day after day, day in and day out. Verse 6, the third illustration is the wind. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Fourth illustration is the streams of water. Verse 7, all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And then there's a conclusion in verse 8. All things, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not satisfied with hearing. So uh, tomorrow's Labor Day, and so this illustration, we're just going to take Labor Day off the table. I'm going to pretend like tomorrow's Tuesday. Tuesday morning is just about for everybody in this room. You're going to wake up at 5 o'clock. You're going to wake up at 4.30 if you're Steve Schrock. Most of you guys are going to wake up something like 6 o'clock, right? The alarm is going to go off. You're going to hit the alarm. You're going to hit the snooze about four times if you're anything like Don Dunn. And then, I really don't know if you do that, Don, but. And then you're going to probably get into the shower. Some of you guys might work out. Uh, You're going to put your clothes on for the day, eat breakfast, brush your teeth, go off to work. You're going to work at your job on Tuesday from 8 to 5, most of the day. Take a little break for lunch, maybe a couple breaks, morning and the afternoon. You're going to go home, you're going to eat dinner. When you're done eating dinner, you're going to just kind of calm down, talk with your family, have a little bit of time. You're going to go to bed, and then Wednesday's going to come. And guess what? You're going to do everything over again. 
And you're probably going to do that again and again and again, hundreds and hundreds of days in a row. Uh, Some of you will, that repeated pattern will never end for you for, for your entire adult life, right? We just, we just do these things. They happen one after the other after the other. And uh, next slide. Uh, life ends up being kind of this cosmic treadmill. We're always going, we're always doing, and yet we're never getting anywhere or this massive spin class that you take. And I guarantee you, if you're in a really good spin class, you are going to sweat and you're going to move a lot, but your bicycle is not going anywhere You went into the room, you came out of the very same room. The more sweat and the more you try harder, you're still not getting any further. It's it's like a a cruel joke that they play on you with a treadmill or a a spin class. You might run hard, you might run long, you might go fast, you might sweat, but at the end of the day, we are in the same place doing the same things in a world of repetition. All of us want to break the cycle. All of us want to do something different. Listen, it's not, Solomon is not just talking about the person who has a really great work ethic. That's that's really admirable in our day. Somebody who grinds it out, gets to work early every morning, accomplishes their tasks for the day, just has all their ducks in a row. They go home after a fulfilling day, they put their feet up. Solomon's not really even addressing necessarily that guy in and of himself, although that's very, very commendable. Look at, uh, look at verse 3. What, is, what does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? And that word toil is repeated for emphasis. It's repeated in the Hebrew for emphasis. It's supposed to read like that. Probably sounds something similar to Genesis chapter 3 for you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree of which I not commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by your toil, by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, from dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. And so we toil, and we keep on toiling. At the end of the day, we really don't go anywhere. This life is is painful. It's cyclical. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this life, knowing that Wednesday morning's going to come around, Thursday, then Friday, and then another Monday is going to come around? Uh, Doug Wilson has a great quote. You guys might know this name. He says, a wise believer is the person who knows the length of his tether. A wise believer is a person who knows the length of his tether. tether. There's a psalm, I think it's Psalm 90 in the Old Testament, where Moses, it's a psalm of Moses, and he says, let us number our days. Let us consider that all of our days are numbered by God. And yet, how much time, effort, toil do we expand trying to control the day of our death and lengthening our life? At its core, sin is deceitful. Satan will do everything to convince you. He is the father of lies, after all. 
that you can lengthen your time on this earth by making better lifestyle choices and whatever else it might be. Because of sin, we convince ourselves that we are creator rather than created, that we are independent rather than dependent, that we live self-centered lives rather than God-centered and God-directed lives. There's a a really great quote in Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis. A senior demon is counseling a junior demon how to afflict believers, and he says this, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions that we have produced in the human heart. We are fearful of same old, same old. We want our life to be different than that. We want to control things more than that. And so we have the same old marriage, and it gets really boring. We got the same old church and the same old preacher that comes and gives silly illustrations, and we got the same old people that we do church with. We got the same old job, we do the same old things, the same old house that we've always lived in, same old paint that's been on the wall, the same old everything, the same old car. And Satan will use all of that to convince us to take control. We don't need the same old, same old. Life is is here today, it's gone tomorrow, and so we embrace that. Number two, it's, it's same old, same old, every single day. And so we remember that with a biblical perspective. Number three, and next slide. Nothing is new, believe it. Nothing is new, believe it. Look down at verse nine in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes one, verse nine. And you might, if you underline or text, um, highlight in your Bible, verse nine is a key verse. You'll see this repeated throughout. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's a, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Our generation loves novelty, especially my generation. Uh, because it's new means that it is automatically better, Right? What would Solomon say to that perspective? Slow down, man. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Sorry to to break it to you. Uh, New doesn't automatically mean better. Did you ever notice when, like, the next iPhone comes out, what the craze is going to be? Apple is going to, somebody is, is agreeing with me. Colleen, everybody. Uh, Apple is going to create a new phone, and the screen is going to be one-eighth of an inch bigger than the screen from last time. And it is going to be so great that you're going to actually buy that phone before it ever hits the shelves, and five million of them will be distributed because everybody has purchased the great new iPhone. And then you'll pull it out of your pocket to look at the time to show everybody that you got this great new phone. Somebody else pulls out their flip phone and says, man, I, I don't see the big deal, man. <laughs> it's not, not really too new, you know? Um, I know uh, um, Henry just started soccer this fall, and they've got um, this great app on the phone. 
where I can communicate with every other parent on the team. And they can put in the practice schedule and the game schedule on there. And it's like, man, somebody invented some amazing app for this phone. You know, soccer practice and games have been going on for quite a long time before apps came out. But, but we think we're pretty good because we can group me instead of like just put it on a piece of paper <laughs> and hand it to somebody. It's, it's amazing, right? Thomas Oden, I love it. A book I want to recommend to you is going to do this at the beginning. Um, he wrote a book. He's a, a church history. He's a first-class scholar is what you would consider Odin. After Modernity, What? And it's an agenda for theology. This is, this is probably the best book that I've read on the mentality of modern people and how they struggle with so many things in this dynamic. And, and here's what he says in this book, After Modernity, What? He says, An inversion of values has occurred in which the highest value is placed not on aesthetic imagination, craft, meaning, or beauty, but on novelty and compulsive uniqueness. I love how that's written, compulsive uniqueness. When novelty becomes the chief criterion of artistic quality, we can only chuckle at the expensive wool being pulled over someone's eyes. But it's novel. I mean, the place that you've heard this the most is the novel coronavirus. You know, it's like, what, novel, this, this is a new thing. Viruses aren't new. Viruses are quite old, actually. But it's novel. Again, another place in, in screw tape letters, I think I've got a slide for this one, Sue Katie. It's a little bit longer quote. Um, this, is just, this is just us. This is the reality of struggling, of wanting something new and novel all the time. Just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of, of eating to produce gluttony, so we pick out this natural pleasantness of change, and we twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. This is, this is Satan. This is the demon speaking in this book. We have to create something new. We have to get a demand for novelty. This demand is entirely our workmanship, the senior demon screw tape says. Next slide. If we neglect our duty, men will not only be contented with, but transported by the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops this January, of a sunrise this morning, of plum pudding this Christmas. Children, until we have taught them better, will be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games. Only by our incessant efforts is the demand for the infinite unrhythmical change kept up. We always have to do, you got to do something new this Christmas. Anybody who's ever dated their, their spouse, if you do a really great date one week, the next date, you got to step it up. It's got to be another better and it's got to be newer, right? Or it's just going to fail. Understand what, what Lewis is saying. Understand what Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Sin causes a man to demand new things, novelty, new stuff. And, and Lewis says this is the work of Satan. This is not the work of God. Novelty draws our gaze past contentment in Christ, especially in Christ. And so we got to have something new, and we got to pursue that.
Again, how do, how do we live in a world that's same old, same old? Thanks, Solomon. I appreciate you bringing me down into the dust and helping me realize I get a little bit too excited about my apps and my next iPhone and, and all these other things. And, but how, how, do we, how do we live? How do we adjust because of this? And this is the last slide that I have for you. Number one, I, I think Ecclesiastes 1 tells us to do this. Reject a lifestyle that worships the future and accept a lifestyle that is informed by the past. I think we need to reject a lifestyle that worships the next thing or, or what's coming, or the next big fad or the next new novelty, whatever it is, and accept a lifestyle that's informed by the past. Solomon is telling us to become a student of history, to learn from our predecessors and learn from life a little bit. Look out in nature. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Take some notes. The sun rises, the sun sets. It's, there's nothing different. There's nothing new under the sun. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, all of my greatest thoughts were stolen by the ancients. That's, Solomon would absolutely agree. And so whether it's theology, and we're always looking for that that new thing or that new dissertation that's put out, somebody has said something in a new way that's different from everybody before, or your career, or your pa- what you're passionate about. I'm going to do this in a new way, and, and I'm going to pursue this new aspect of, of accomplishing this task. Whether it's any of those things, pull back on the reins a little bit. And don't worship a lifestyle that is so focused on tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own, right? God gives us enough just for the day. It's our our daily bread. And accept a lifestyle that's informed more by the past. Number two, the same old, same old, and everybody over the age of 50 in this room is going to probably say amen after I say this. The same old, same old is really not that bad. Right? Um, life has certain rhythms to it. God has ordained those rhythms. And walking through life through same old patterns, through the same old things, it's, it's really not that bad. In fact, it's so not that bad, it's one of the chief characteristics of our Lord and Savior. So I want you to leave your place in Ecclesiastes and I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And this is the last verse we're going to look at. Reject a lifestyle that worships the future. Accept a lifestyle that's informed by the past and embrace the same old, same old because it's really not that bad. Hebrews chapter 13, look down at verse 8. Uh, I'll love this. I'll, I'll kind of dive in a little bit earlier in the context. Um, Hebrews 13 is a, is a great chapter of Scripture, and it's really funny how the author of Hebrews puts marriage, um, sex, and money, those two topics, right next to each other in the book of Hebrews, okay? Look, look back at verse 4. Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all. 
and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. There you've got your two biggest issues in marriage. Karis and Caleb, if you're here today, counseling with you guys. Your two biggest issues in marriage are going to be sex and money. Just, just know that those are going to be your two biggest problems. Sex, verse 4, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who has said that? Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. We can be content with God because he will never leave us nor forsake us. Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same, old, same, old. Yesterday, today, and forever. And one of the chief characteristics of the same old Savior with the same old gospel and the story that has been told of redemption, generation after generation, is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And if he is the same old, same old God with the same old redemptive gospel to draw us out of the slavery of sin and into a relationship with him, then in life we can embrace the same old, same old because we have a Savior who is constant. He never changes. We don't need something new because we have something very old. We don't need the next big thing because we have the same person in relationship in our life. And he gives us the grounding and the foundation to live a life that is always connected with him, where he will never leave us nor forsake us. Folks, Ecclesiastes in a nutshell, if you realize that life really amounts to a whole lot of nothing, you'll find everything in Christ. And if you realize that all of our pursuits and all of our tasks after wisdom and knowledge and pleasure and satisfaction ultimately lead us to nothing, then you can see that Christ gives us absolutely everything. And we will be very content with the same old, same old. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank, you for, uh, thank you for giving us Ecclesiastes. Thank you for this book. And I pray that we would pursue the wisdom that you would have us to draw from it while being led closer and closer to the truth of the gospel and the person of Christ. God, your word tells us that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. As a church now, as we go through Ecclesiastes, we are asking you for wisdom. And I pray that we would be a people who trust, ultimately trust you, and have faith in who you are and what you are doing. Let us not doubt, let us not be tossed to and fro, but to anchor ourselves completely and confidently by our faith in you. Jesus, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.